0: functioning drunks, and those who had either just been in jail or were on their way to jail. And there I was, a young preacher boy, as I came to be known by the group. Uh, They had anything but a desire for godliness. And I suppose it was about halfway through that summer, and some of you have heard this story before. It was about halfway through that summer, We were actually sitting in the back of a pickup truck, having our hot dog lunch freshly purchased from Rudder's convenience store. And I don't know what clicked that day, but the incessant mocking and the insults that had been hurled at me had just gotten to me. And it was normal for me to just kind of laugh it off, smile, but but this day at lunch, it it was different. One young man who was about my age said something, and that was it. I dropped my lunch, went over to the other side of the pickup truck, and I grabbed him by the shirt and picked him up and said words I should have never said. And I told him what I was prepared to do to him. Just then, out of the corner of my eye, in a green Ford Ranger, I noticed the green Ford Ranger parked there. And I noticed that there was someone in that, that truck, that little truck who was looking on and I happened to make eye contact with him and it was a member of this church. Yeah. And he looked at me and just shook his head and backed out. And in that moment, I released, I, I let go I put him down, picked up his lunch and gave it back to him and grabbed mine and went over to the other side of the truck, the wheel well, and sat down. And no one said a thing the rest of that day. No one said a thing. Everything that I had said that summer and everything that I had professed that summer, I, I unsaid. And that sin that I committed was like a gut punch to me. It was like a gut punch to me. It was a gut punch to my, my testimony for Christ. And it came to my memory as we were studying last week in our study through 1 Peter. And I want, to turn, want you to turn your attention there once again this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2. And I'll share with you the verses that, it really, that really came to my mind that, that brought this, this instant to my mind. He says in verse 12 of First Peter chapter 2. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak evil against you as evildoers. They may see your good deeds. And glorify God on the day of visitation. And I read that and I read another verse, John to verse 15, this is the will of God that by doing good, you shall put to, to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And I remembered that instance like it was just yesterday and, and, and had that same nausea in my stomach. And I, I wanted to ask, my, I want to ask myself the question, or I asked myself the question, how do I, do what he says here. How do I keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable? And I actually thought that today would just be a little application about that verse. Maybe just kind of supplement our study a little bit and and tell you just, you know, quickly, not long. But I opened up a can of worms that is is a big can of worms. And my hope is to to give you something today that would help you to understand what it means to, to live a life of good works, to live a life that's honorable among the Gentiles, honorable, the, the way of, the, when he says Gentiles, it's just a way of say, speaking about those those who do not love and know God. Those who are outside of a relationship with God. And maybe some of you are here this morning and you, you came here and you're outside of a relationship with God. How do you live a life that is honorable in front of a world that is dark? That is, that is putrid in its wickedness. How do you, how do you live like that? so you don't have to go through what I went through that day where, man, just a gut punch to my my witness for Christ. And I was thinking about this text, this verse, and I realized that there was something there that's compelling. There's something here that's compelling Peter to speak. There's something here that's compelling Peter to write in the way that he writes. And I think it was the words of Jesus. What I see in Peter's writing here... Hearkens back to a lesson that he learned some years earlier, on a hill by the Sea of Galilee. And it was those words of Jesus that, that come through that shine through in Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five through seven, you'll recognize that as being what? The, the Sermon on the Mount. When there was a large crowd gathered together and, it, and, and uh, I, I, I'm just going back in my mind to standing on that hill maybe in the very spot where Jesus might have been when he sees this large crowd gathering and seeing a large crowd he calls his disciples to himself and he speaks to them and he tells them about his kingdom. He tells them about the members of his kingdom. He tells them about the the mission of, of his kingdom. He tells them about the message of his kingdom. And it occurred to me as I was thinking about this text, that what Peter says in 1 Peter, that it was that very instant that compelled Peter to write what he writes here in 1 Peter chapter 2 and to write the way that he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2. What I hope to do, in fact, if you will, just turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew chapter 5, which I think is the preeminent text on the honorable life of a believer. The good works of a believer. This has got to be the preeminent text. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way let your light shine before others. And now here's what I. Reminds me of what Peter said. So that they may see your good works. And give glory to your father who is in heaven. If we understand The words of Jesus, if we understand the context in which he spoke these words, we will be ready. We will be well suited. We will be well prepared to live an honorable life in a midst of a world of darkness. In in the midst of a world that is increasing in wickedness. If we get this, what he's saying here, and if we get the context of what he's saying, we'll be well prepared for good works. I I love this text. And this text is built on what I call the, the, the mission of the kingdom. What is the mission of the kingdom? The mission of the kingdom is to live in such a way That men see our good works and glorify our father in heaven. But what this isn't about, it's not necessarily about a list of good works. Well, just, just check off this list and do these things, do these things, do these things. This is rooted in a character that finds its origin in your relationship with God. In other words, this Sermon on the Mount begins, you look up at chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds, I told you about this, he went up on a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Who did he teach? He taught the disciples, and he said these things, and then he lists these nine, what you know to be beatitudes, right? These nine pronouncements of blessing. Blessed, 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 blessed. That word blessed refers to someone who is in a right relationship to God. Jesus is identifying those who are in a right relationship with God. And he demonstrates that in the character of their heart. their, their, their Who they are. In other words, he says it like this. Those who are in a right relationship with God are poor in spirit, yet spiritually rich. You see in verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poverty of spirit. You don't hear that talked about in a day and age that is filled with and focused on your best life now. Poor in spirit. Poverty of spirit is is not something that's just pretend. It's not something you can just make believe. It's not something you can dress up on the outside. We're not talking here about a person's insignificance before God necessarily. As if we're not valuable in his eyes. But what it is, is a recognition. Poverty of spirit is a recognition that morally we have nothing to offer God. It's acknowledging that we have nothing whereby to earn favor with God. The poor in spirit want so badly to be part of the kingdom of heaven, but realize they can't afford it. And when you're poor in spirit, you come before God, you you want the greatest treasure, but you know you have nothing with which to buy it. And because of that, you're cut to the heart. No pretending, no make believe, no spiritual manipulation involved, just this correct assessment of the poverty or spiritual bankruptcy before God. And what he says is those who are poor in spirit are actually spiritually rich. And then he says in verse four, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What are the characteristics of those who are part of the kingdom? Their poverty of spirit, poor in spirit, yet spiritually rich. They, they mourn, yet they're comforted. It's interesting, the word for mourn is the strongest word in the Greek language that could be used in this context. Because it refers to someone who mourns the loss of a close loved one. It's a passionate lamentation. It is the deepest and most bitter kind of sorrow. What do you mourn for? Commentator James Boyce said this. He said, mourn for what? He said, if the first beatitude has to do with spiritual poverty and the hopeless state of a human being before God, apart from grace, the second must be mourning for sin. I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this. Listen. He said, I have no hesitation again in asserting that the failure of the church to have a greater impact upon the life of men and women in the world today is due entirely to the fact that her own life is not in order. He said, so we must start with ourselves and see why, unfortunately, this description of Christian, of the Christian as one who mourns is one that makes us feel that somehow or another, this is not as evident in the church today as it once was. This word mourn is written in the present active. It's a present active participle. It's one who is continually mourning over their sin. It's a sincere sorrow. James said, cleanse your hearts, you sinners. Purify, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. The character of, of someone who's part of the kingdom is, is, is one who is poor in spirit, yet spiritually rich. Mourning over sin, yet finds great comfort. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, the character is uh, uh, of one who is meek, yet honored. To be meek can be translated to be gentle, to be to be unassuming. Humble, considerate. Meekness is a joyful, willing subjection to God's truth. That's what meekness is. The word is used here in contrast. In other words, the Greek word that's used is the opposite of another term for pride or lofty heartedness. You are meek when you know that you're talking about the opposite of pride, true humility. Now, it's difficult to define our terms, but you can just think of the examples. You have Moses, who's called the meekest man who ever lived. Jesus, in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, describes himself as meek and lowly. One theologian said, The man who is truly meek is the one who is amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. Meek, yet honored. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. One who is a part of this kingdom hungers and thirsts for righteousness, yet is satisfied. Those who are part of the kingdom of heaven hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is righteousness in all of its aspects. And I think it's practically speaking of the practice of righteousness. The everyday living out of that which is right before God. It refers to everything that is in accord with the true will of God. D.A. Carson said, The person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness hungers and thirsts for conformity to God's will. And it's like this continual, I just long for more and more righteousness, the practical living out of that which is in conformity to God. And yet while he hungers and thirsts after that, he also knows the deep satisfaction that comes with the righteousness that is in Christ. We When you're part of the kingdom, you have a growing and consuming appetite for righteousness. And that is completely contrary to everything this world has ever known. And the everlasting promise of God is to satisfy every heart, everyone who longs for, who hungers for this alien righteousness. Verse 7, he says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Members of the kingdom are merciful and yet receiving mercy, which is kind of interesting. They're not the the ones who necessarily dispense mercy out of themselves. They, They are merciful and they receive mercy. Dr. Zodiati says this, he says, not merely those who express acts of mercifulness, but who have this attribute as a result of the indwelling God. He says it's to show mercy, to show compassion, to extend help for the consequence of sin. To have compassion or mercy on a person in unhappy circumstances. Mercy is never a characteristic of the proud. Mercy is never a characteristic of the self-sufficient. Mercy is a characteristic of those who have received mercy themselves. They who are proud, those who are self sufficient, cannot be a provider of mercy because they can't be its recipient. Mercy is a characteristic of God. Verse 8 Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And he says, Members of the kingdom are pure in heart with a heart that's set on seeing God. Their hearts have been purged. What is he talking about? Physical here, we're talking about the spiritual nature of having a clean heart before God whose own heart is set on seeing God who remain confident that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus but who know that one day by God's grace they will see God himself because of Christ. He says in verse... Nine, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Those who are members of the kingdom are peacemakers in the image of God. They, they're they not just peace-loving, they're not just peaceful, but they are peacemakers. I think this is a reference to those who, who publish the gospel, the good news of God and Christ Jesus, that God took the initiative and left heaven's throne room through the Lord Jesus Christ and came to earth in order to live a perfectly sinless life, innocent, magnificent in all of his glory, and lived a perfectly sinless life, adhering to the law of God absolutely perfectly, and yet who himself was was crucified, dead, and buried. Our sin laid on him, charged to his account, and his righteousness by faith, charged to us. Those who are peacemakers are those who publish the good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. It's interesting because we're talking about members of the kingdom here and, and we have yet to find this, this bold and brash. We have yet to find a person who insists on his own will and who insists on his own way. We have yet to find a rabble rouser. It continues on in verse 10. Those blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Persecuted yet protected. Protected. And that word persecuted has the idea of one who is harassed, who is pursued. Why? For righteousness' sake. The truth is that if you're living for the life of Christ, you'll suffer for it. You will be persecuted even as the life and death of our Lord Jesus Christ proves. Yet those who are persecuted will be and are indeed protected for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That persecution cannot interfere with the spiritual inheritance of the godly in Christ Jesus. During the days of the early church, Christians found themselves under the rule of Rome. The Roman Empire was big, it was enveloping, it was growing every day, and in an effort to to unite all of the people under the rule of Rome, the Roman government began what is known, instituted this practice known as emperor worship, and their thinking was that if all people were united under one man, then all people would be unified, and so it was determined that once a year, every person had to burn a pinch of incense to the deity of caesar saying the words caesar is lord just a pinch and there's an interesting note to go along with that story because whenever a person did this he was given something called a libellus a certificate and that certificate said that because he had demonstrated his political loyalty to Caesar, he was free to worship any God that he wished during the next year just by burning a pinch of incense. The early Christian was faced with a choice, Christ or Caesar. They refused to compromise their commitment to Christ, even in the least least little bit, and this resulted in them being Marked out as hated. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness sake. Theirs is the kingdom, but they're persecuted yet protected. And then kind of in the same vein, he says, verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you. They're, They're reviled yet rewarded. Reviled. The word revile means to have reproach heaped on you, to, to have insults heaped on you, to be slandered and mocked, despised. It has the idea of speaking disparagingly about, a person, disparagingly about a person in a manner which is not justified. When you live according to the word, you can be sure that at one point or another, you'll be mocked. I love what MacArthur says. He says, God does not call his people to be sanctified celebrities using their worldly reputations in a self-styled effort to bring him glory, using their power to supplement his power, and their wisdom to enhance his gospel. We can mark it down, he says, as a cardinal principle that to the extent the world embraces a Christian calls or person or that a Christian calls or person embraces the world, to that extent that calls or person has compromised the gospel and scriptural standards. You say, well, Joe, you're, you're telling me why, what, what was it that motivated Peter to write what he did here in 1 Peter chapter 2? How am I going to live an honorable life? It continues on in this well-known text. Matthew chapter 5, 13 through 16. You remember, that you, he says, having just pronounced this blessedness, this, this you are in a right relationship with God when this characterizes your life. Having just said that, he now says and looks them each in the eye. I can imagine sitting there overlooking the the Sea of Galilee as he sees the sea of people surrounding the crowds and crowds of people surrounding Jesus there, sitting on that rock perhaps with his disciples around him. And he sees the world. And as he sees the world, he speaks to his disciples and says, you, you looks each one in the eye. You are the salt of the earth. Salt. You know what salt was used for primarily in that day. Salt was a, a preservative. Salt was used to, to, to not just preserve food, but to keep food from, well, to, to preserve food, to keep food from spoiling it. It, it would be used to purify Wounds. And and the emphasis in this text is not laid so much on the purpose of salt. He doesn't really give emphasis to that at all. The emphasis on the text is what happens when salt becomes useless. You're the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its taste, how shall it saltiness be restored? You're the salt of the earth. If you're a member of the kingdom, you, you are going to be salty. You, you have this pre- preserving, purifying effect on the earth, on humanity. You're going to be different. That's your character. It's going to be your nature. And listen to this. If, if that's not what you want, then you don't want to be part of the kingdom of heaven. If you want to be of the same nature as the rest of humanity, then you don't want to be part of the kingdom. That's the basic entrance exam to the kingdom of heaven. It's basic to what it means to be a Christian. That phrase, if salt has lost its taste, the word for taste is the word moranthe. It's a word that means foolish. Is the idea of not lining up with one's purpose or intention. The, the, the verb is moros. It means dull, sluggish, applied to the mind. It's stupid. It's silly. Applied to taste, it's insipid or flat. The verb is use of salt. It means to become so insipid. It means to, to, to play the fool. And, and what he's saying here is that which has become useless... Salt doesn't lose its salinity, but when it becomes mixed with other ingredients or other elements, it loses its usefulness. Salt is still going to be salty if it's mixed with beach sand. But you're not going to put it on your mashed potatoes. It's useless. It's pointless. And he says, when your life becomes mixed with the world... Like Demas who loved this present world and departed from us. When your life becomes mixed with the world, with the earth. You become useless to the kingdom of heaven. The question is. What is it that makes a person? What is it that causes Jesus to say to his disciples? You are salt. What makes us salt? Salty, but this is in the right use of the word, not the way people use it today. What is it? He just spent this whole time, verses 2 through to 12, telling us what it is that makes the, the, the Christian, the member of the kingdom, salty. What is it? It's our relationship to God, which has been expounded and explained in these nine characteristics that the Beatitudes serve to inform us that members of the kingdom of heaven are radically different from everyone else. We don't think the same way. We don't speak the same way. We don't love the same way. We don't even desire the same things. So you are the salt of the earth. And if you become mixed with the world's way of thinking, the world's way of speaking, the world's way of loving, the world's way of desiring, what use are you? If you're not salty, then what purpose are you serving as in the kingdom? And this is a major warning here that Jesus is sounding. What makes you salty is your character. Don't try to mix it. Don't try to dilute it. I think this becomes clearer when he uses another metaphor. He doesn't say that you are the salt of the earth, but he says in verse 13, verse 14, you are the light of the world. World, what is world? World is not just a reference to humanity, but it is more of a reference to the entire system of wickedness. The world in which we live is Dark is sinful, called you out of darkness, Peter said. The Lord Jesus tells us that those who are members of the kingdom of heaven are in the world, and because they are members of the kingdom of heaven, they are light, the light of the world, light in the midst of darkness. And this isn't difficult to understand at all. What is it that gives us our I don't know, what, how do you say that? Uh, our lightness. What, what is it that, how do we become light? What is it that makes us stand out in the darkness? Jesus is saying here, he's showing us, he's telling us really who the members of his kingdom are. He is identifying the members of his kingdom. And as we said, this is really radical stuff. This is almost unheard of. As a member of the kingdom, you are poor in spirit. And you are grieving over sin. And you are meek and longing for righteousness. And you are merciful toward others because you yourself have been mercied. You are pure in heart, longing to see God, seeking to spread the gospel of peace, persecuted, but rejoicing, reviled, yet rewarded. And you know what that is? That's Light. Verses 2 through 12 is the light. As members of the kingdom of heaven, we're walking in the midst of a dark world, a world of spiritual blackness, a world of spiritual darkness. These beatitudes are what, that's what marks us out as members of the kingdom. So what's the point? The point is this. Don't have a light and put a bushel basket over it. That's dumb, <laughs> right? Nobody does that. Nobody puts a light up in their room and then puts a bushel basket over it. It's antithetical. It doesn't make sense. That's not what light is for. Light is to be displayed. What is light? Light is your poverty in spirit, your spiritual poverty. Light is your mourning over sin. Light is your meekness and hungering and thirsting after righteousness, your mercy, your your purity of heart, longing to see God. It is, it is taking the gospel of peace, the fact that you are known as a peacemaker, and it is your persecution and your reviling. And see, here's what happens. You and I, as members of the kingdom, we seek to hide the light that he has ignited in our hearts when we try to extinguish these characteristics. You understand? When you start trying to relieve your poverty of spirit, When you seek to to cover up meekness, when you try to run from persecution and defend yourself in the midst of reviling, the light is put in a basket. You look like everybody else. You sound like everyone else. And that's, to use his word, that's moronic. Why would you do that? Don't cut back on those things, don't try to hide those things. Don't try to fit in with the world by concealing your poverty of spirit or your mourning over sin. Don't, don't obscure your meekness or your desire for righteousness. Don't seek to suppress mercy or pity or purity. Don't, don't attempt to disguise the gospel of peace that you're preaching or, or the reality of your joy in the midst of persecution. Why? Because that would be like lighting a lamp and then putting it under your bed. You. And, and he's talking here To the disciples collectively, you are a city on a hill. A city on a hill in the midst of a pitch black night. And I don't think we're to miss the imagery here. Jesus is on a hill with his followers around him, surrounded by a sea of suffering, sick sinners who are in the midst of the dark. I'm going to say something here, and this is going to maybe irk you, and I hope not too much. We'll find out next week if you come back. But in the context of what we're getting into, 1 Peter, the power of our testimony for Christ is not fueled by or found in the voting booth. It's founded on our right relationship to God through Christ, which is the fuel for this kind of character. That day, 30, more than 30 years ago, it was quiet all the rest of the day. And I went, we got back to the, the little farm where we unloaded everything. And I stood up before those guys and I said, you know what? I really blew it today. I've been telling you all about how I want to serve Christ and how I want to preach his word. And I blew it today. And I walked up to that kid and I asked him, will you please forgive me? And he said, will you give me a ride home? <laughs> he didn't have a car. He had to walk. And I said, yeah, I'll give you a ride home. And I think I picked him up the rest of that summer. Nobody, as far as I know, nobody ever came to Christ. And oh, I, man, I long for a do-over. <laughs> long for a do-over. What is your testimony? What is the world of Gentiles seeing? Are they seeing a bunch of angry people who just watch the news and get so mad at, what, at, at how dark the darkness is and get so mad at how wicked the wickedness is, but yet do nothing to bring any purifying effect and bring nothing, do nothing to bring any light. What Christ do they see? You say, well, how, how, do, I, how do I get that? I think of three things. First of all, you have to examine your character. Look at your life and see whether or not these things are true of you. Look at these, look at these characteristics. Go home and evaluate your life. Are you pure, poor in spirit? And the, don't get into the, to the quantity of these beatitudes. Well, I, I don't see enough. Look at the quality. Do you find yourself mourning over sin? well, not enough. No, no, I didn't say that. I said, do you find yourself mourning over sin? Do you find yourself longing for righteousness? Do you find, look at your life, review your character. Then secondly, I'd say some of you, for some of us, it might be the fact that we, we've just forgotten what's happened. I think it's interesting that when Titus, when, when Paul speaks to Titus and he talks about good works there, which is all throughout, it's all throughout the New Testament, obviously. What does he tell them to do? He says, Titus chapter three, he says you're to to live this pure life and and not to revile in return. For you yourselves were once a godless people. You were without grace and mercy, but you have received grace and mercy. Remember what God has done. Praise the Lord. And I'll tell you a third thing that you do and that, that many of us neglect Uh, that that is intended to help us to live an honorable, godly life of good works. Think about Hebrews chapter 10. What does he say? The writer of Hebrews says, Don't don't neglect the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some, but so much the more as you see the day approaching. And what does he say? To come together to stir up what? Love and good works. The gathering of the church is intended to spur on love and good works. And by the way, that term spur on or stir up isn't just like nice. Come on, let's do it. Pat you on the back. I I, I think of Matt. Matt used to ride, or maybe you still do. Matt rides bulls or used to ride bulls. You still do that? No, you're smarter now. used to ride bulls, and in order to get those bulls to go, you'd have to kick them. You'd have to, you know, or a horse. You got to spur them on. That hurts. Sometimes you come into the church, and you, oh, that hurt. Yeah, get out and go do something. Stir up, spur you on to love and good works. That's what this gathering is about. We leave out of here, man. We're recharged. Like, that's it. We're going to go charge hell with a water pistol. We're ready to go. That's what we're about. I want to live a life that's honorable. And the way that happens is through the character that is instilled in us based on our relationship to God through Jesus Christ. So can I ask you, do you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Do you know for sure that if you were to die today, you'd be with God in heaven? <laughs> Amazing. As I see some of you going like this. Yeah. I know. Praise the Lord. But what about those of you who say, I, I, I don't know? Would you come to this good news of the gospel that we talked about justification earlier? We confessed our, our doctrine of justification. Would you come to the good news of the gospel? That is that God would put your sin on Christ when he died on the cross, that he was buried and three days later, he rose again and has been testified of ever since. Would you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and receive a righteousness that's not your own? You only get there when there's that poverty of spirit, the mourning over sin, meekness, those kind of things that he talks about. If you, if you are there, then brothers and sisters, Let's get prepared for what God's gonna teach us through Peter, through the, through, as, we, as we go through 1 Peter, continuing on going, going through 1 Peter. We talked last week about uh, the way that we make an impact on the world is through our sanctification. Guess what's coming next? The way we make an impact on our world is through our submission. Yeah, we'll see who comes next week to hear that. That is gonna mark us out. But you only get there through these characteristics. You only get there through these, this character. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you.